Well, Providence, this joy is uh, this day is no no um, well, it's the same as every other Sunday. When I think about it, it's always a joy to see you, and uh, I hope that you have had a good week. If you're a guest with us, we're thrilled that you're here. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter six. And if you don't, there's a lot of Bibles in the chairs near you. And if you don't have one at home, please take that home as a gift. We'd love. Uh, for you to have that. Um, For those of you who come um, most weeks and you're used to me putting the text that we're going to preach up on the screen, that's not going to happen this morning simply because of its length. And so um, we're going to encourage you to really do something that's probably healthier, and that is to have a Bible in your hand and to look at it with your own eyeballs uh, in your your, uh, lap. But um, uh, I asked you last uh, Sunday to pray for the first uh, service that we had last Monday, that Monday night service, and uh, I just want to say thank you. It's, it's important for me to say thank you if I ask you to do something like that. I believe you did. About a, th- a third of the people who were here on Monday were first-timers to Providence, and so it was a new opportunity uh, for folks who can't come on a Sunday who were invited, and, uh, and so we thank God for that, and I would ask you to continue to pray for that because uh, well, because Monday's coming. There'll be one uh, tomorrow night. And so, um, and then uh, second is, uh, I want to ask you to consider uh, something actually tonight. And that is at six o'clock tonight here in this room, we're going to meet uh, to, uh, to pray and to worship. Uh, there's a lot of things that are happening in our own lives personally, within our church family and within our society. And we want to spend time praying. And so that's going to start tonight at six o'clock And uh, I would just make an appeal uh, for you. I know there's other things that you can do, and maybe you already have plans. Uh, I'm sure that you do. Um, But I I would ask you an appeal uh, for your time tonight at 6 o'clock. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, as we open your word now, we want to hear from you. We ask that you would do what only you can do. We pray for it every week, and we ask that it would happen again, that you would demonstrate the power of your spirit by creating curiosity and intrigue within our heart, that you would give us interest as we think about the broken parts of our own life and our broken world. And when we see a, a new paradigm, a new value system, and when we see your word, I pray God that you would incline our hearts to lean toward it, to open up our heart, to believe in it, to give us courage, to apply it to our life. And so I pray for those who are weary, who are tired, who are heavy laden, who are stressed, exhausted, and distracted, that you would create within them a longing for your word this morning. And so would you speak through weakness and give us joy in seeing Jesus afresh this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I uh, am one, like many of you, I love the Bible. And when I read the Bible, I uh, find that it's wildly refreshing to me that Jesus never looked into the eyes of a weary soul and said, impress me by changing and then you can follow. His invitation through page after page after page, interaction through interaction with different people, men and women, old and young, every race, every color, every ethnicity, every person, religious, irreligious was always different. It was always follow me and I will leave such an impression on your life that you will be changed forever. It's such a winsome invitation. It's a personal, relational, humble, hopeful invitation. And people who followed are called disciples. Disciples. 
At first there was 12 and then there was more. And when he rose from the dead, he gathered his 12 and he said something so important. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, when he says all authority has been given after he's just been resurrected from the dead, you have to understand what he's saying is this, that the jurisdiction of my authority extends to a place where there is no boundaries. And what that means is the the dominion of my authority encompasses your very life. Every decision, every action, your, your future, your, the day you were born, the day you're going to die, it is all under my control. I have absolute authority over all things. That includes our lives, and therefore it matters what I say. I have to believe that you think about the context when he says all authority has been given, what he means is, and what I'm about to say is also binding on you. And then he says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. As a people here at Providence, we want to be disciples of Jesus and we want to make disciples because Jesus who has authority of our life told us to do so. But we know this, before you can make a disciple, you have to be one. And before you can be one, you have to know what one is. And so what we're looking at over this month is simply identities of a disciple. What is a disciple? Last week, we looked at a disciple as a worshiper of Jesus. And what this means is that this word worship, it actually comes from the word worth. In other words, we see the worth of Jesus Christ, that he's superior to every other person that you could possibly follow in your life And you're so inspired by his worth that you give him worship. That's the very first attribute of a disciple. And the second follows on its heels. And it's the idea of a disciple is a learner of Jesus. In other words, Jesus, in all of his worth, in all of his splendor, he opens his mouth and words come out. And his disciples care about those words. They want to learn from those words. They want to imitate those words. They want to hold on to those words. And so the word actually means, the word disciple in its, in its root form, it literally means student or pupil or learner. And so we want to learn from Christ. And here in Luke chapter 6, we actually find a time when Jesus, before an entire multitude of people, he began teaching. This is what it says, starting in verse 17. And he came down with them, the, the, them there is the 12 disciples, okay? Those, those 12 who always followed him. And he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their own diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowds sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. 
But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not. And you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye when you yourselves do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. A few things. What does it mean to be a disciple? First, those disciples of Jesus positioned themselves to hear and to see him. What I mean is this, is that when you see with your eyes the unrivaled worth of Jesus Christ, you begin with your life to position yourself so that your eyes can be able to see his glory and so that your ears can be able to hear his words. And so you notice in verse 17, it says he came down with them, the 12 disciples, and suddenly there was a crowd. And you notice that among that crowd in verse 17 and 18, it was a great crowd of his disciples. Now, these are not the 12. These are other followers of Jesus who had been encouraged, who had seen him do miracles, who had 
already heard him teach at some point in time to say, I want to learn more from this person. I want to follow this person around. But among the crowd that included disciples were also a great multitude of other people who were not disciples. Maybe they were first timers. They came to say, who is this Jesus? But one thing was true about all of them. He says, and they all came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Now you think about what's happening here. There were some people, what that means among the crowd, who had heard Jesus before. They had seen his glory already. And they said, I have to go back. I have to see more. I have to hear more. I have to know more. But then there was also people who would have been invited guests, who would have heard at some point in time, you have to be able to come with me. You have to be able to come and see this, this man who has authority in what he says and authority in what he does. And can you just imagine having the ability that God has to be able in a crowd of people to look at the depths of each human heart and to see the spectrum of different responses in this crowd. It's probably not that dissimilar to the spectrum in this one. Among that crowd would have been people who were terribly curious and very confused. There is probably among people within that crowd feelings of You're threatening my worldview. You're threatening my life. You're threatening my system. You're threatening my comfort level. But there were also people who were saying, you're not threatening me. I feel tremendous hope because I may actually be healed. Whether it's a physical disease, maybe it's an emotional disease. Maybe it's just the guilt and shame of their own sin. Maybe this person can take away the malady that fills my heart. There had to be also people among there who were skeptical who sat in the corner and said, who is this dude? And do I really believe? I mean, he doesn't even look that impressive. He's never been to school. Like, why should I? But then there was others among there who looked at him and it says, I trust this man. I trust who he is. I trust that he's different from all the rest. What I want you to notice though, is this is simply because of the nature of the gathering. Nobody was forced to gather. Oh, maybe there are some little kids. Mom says, you're coming because I'm going. And they have, oh, I got to go. I got to go. But outside of little kids who were forced to go with their mom and dad, everybody there had a choice. And those people chose to be there. And I want you to consider the fact that not everybody in the region came. There were people who were invited that probably said, no, I'm too busy. And then there were people who were there who probably didn't believe. And there were people there who probably didn't return. Not everyone stayed. But here's the deal. For the disciple who had seen Jesus' worth, this was the only place to be. The only place to be. Several years ago, our family was on vacation and we chose um, to, to um, well, we were in New Mexico. And there's a lot of beautiful things in New Mexico. One of them is a place called White Sands National. And uh, White Sands is literally, there's mountains all around. There's no water, but it's like a beach. And yet the beach is, there's so much sand and so much wind that it forms these huge dunes. And so you can go there and we read about it. And they said, hey, this is great for kids because you can get these little like snow discs that you sled down, you know, and you can climb up and you sled down the sand. And it'll be a great time. And so we said, hey, let's do it. And so we head to the hotel and we drive out there. It's 45 minutes from our hotel. We drive out there. And it's like being at the beach on the sun without water. It was the hottest day. It was, it was, it was, there was not a lot of worship that was going on. And the fact is, is those things, they slide a whole lot better on snow than they ever did on that, on that sand. It was about 105 degrees. There was no water in sight. 
And so it was, it was, um, it was a long afternoon. And so we bring all the boys, we head back to the hotel. So we get back to the hotel and, and they're like, Hey man, you know, did you enjoy it? And it's like, this is their thing. You know, so they're like, yeah, man, you got a great thing over there. That's really amazing. You got a bunch of sand. And, and, um, and they said, listen, you, you have to go back at sunset. And I'm like, you know, uh, sunsets, like you, you got a parking lot right out there. I can just go stand in the parking lot. And they're like, no, you don't understand. It's, it's just different. And so we're like, well, maybe, you know, so we go to the room. We're thinking about it. And we're like, well, look, man, we're in New Mexico. Um, we probably should if everyone says it's that, it's that important. And so we get some pizzas. We put them in the car. We drive back out there. The sun's going down. So now all of a sudden that the air is cooling down. The, the sand is absolutely, it's cool now to the touch. I have just an amazing time. And suddenly the sun begins to set. And this is what we saw. It's, it, it was the most spectacular sunset. And why it was so spectacular, I've never seen this before. When I see the sunset in Raleigh, it's like, hey, there's the sunset over there. And it's not over there, right? It's, it's over there. It's, or it's in one spot, but it's not everywhere. But there, it was the most spectacular thing is from, from, from one side of the sky all the way to the other, the whole thing was on fire. We ask our boys still today, what's the best sunset you ever have seen? And they say, white sands. Now, what's the point? The point is this. Had we not positioned ourselves to see, we wouldn't have. And so it is with God and his word is that those who see his worth and hear his unrivaled wisdom, they become deeply motivated to position themselves to hear and to see Jesus again and again and again and again. And so let me encourage us as a church family to position ourselves before Jesus each day. One of the legendary weaknesses of a thirsty soul is its willingness to drink from dirty puddles when pure water is just ahead. We assume that there is not anything further that's cleaner or fresher. And so we look down and we say, this will do. And for a moment, we feel temporary happiness and relief until we are absolutely wrecked with guilt and shame. The Bible constantly tells us, leave the puddle because glory is just ahead. And it's hard for us to imagine that. And so even the people in the Bible, they're telling each other in the Bible, you've got to position yourself where strength, where God's grace is falling. Let me show you. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is writing Timothy. Timothy is a pastor and he wants to quit ministry. He's discouraged. He's fearful. He's timid. He's scared of what's happening in the world. And Paul comes to him and he says, listen to me, you then my son, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see these two words, be strengthened. This is so important you understand this. Be means you have something to do. It means you have to position yourself where strength comes from someone else or something else. In other words, what he's saying is this, is that the kind of strength that God provides for the spiritual life does not originate in you or in me. Strength is there. You can be strengthened. And the only way to be strengthened is you have to be there. In other words, you have to place yourself under those waterfalls, under those places where strength is falling, where this grace is falling. So, for example, most of us in the last day or two, we took a shower. 
right? Which is recommended. And so, and so for each of us, our bathroom is set up in such a way so that when you turn on the spigot, right, water, it doesn't fall out of the entire bathroom. So everything gets wet. It's only in one particular place. Even within the shower, you can walk around the water and avoid getting hit by the water. And in doing so, you actually miss out on all of the healing, cleansing, restorative properties of that water. And so it is with God's grace. What he's saying is this. He says, Timothy, this is what I need you to do. Do you see where grace is falling? Now stand underneath it. Let it fall so that you can be strengthened. And so the next question is, but it's grace. Grace is not something you can just go buy. So like grace, what? And so Paul clarifies what he means by the grace of God. In Acts chapter 20, verse 32, this is what he says. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. In other words, what he's saying is this, Timothy, put yourself where the Bible is pouring so that you can see. For if you see, you'll never unsee. But where is it pouring? Well, right now we're opening up the Bible. So this is one place. There's life groups at Providence where after, or I guess this is the hour to where most of you have already been there, where you go to the life group, maybe midweek to where you're going to be talking about either some other place in the Bible, or maybe you'll even talk about this passage, about how do we apply this passage to our life. For some of us in the room, we're just either starting following Christ or maybe you haven't yet decided to follow Christ, but you're interested. We even have a life group that starts next week. It's called Starting Point. That for those of you who are saying, I don't know Christ, or maybe I'm just starting to know Christ, but how do I begin this relationship with Christ? How do I understand who he is? We welcome you next Sunday to come. But let me tell you something, no matter how much church or life group or small group or other things, there's absolutely nothing that can replace praying and reading your Bible on your own. And so I know some of you, you simply don't, or maybe you just haven't yet. Maybe you don't have a pattern. Maybe you've tried and you think, I just don't get anything out of it. So I just, it's just not my thing. I can't tell you the way. I can only tell you what I do. It's not the right way, but it's a way, and it's a way that has fed me for a very, very long time. And so I know that there's some help in it. And this is what I do. Okay, here's just a few suggestions. The first thing I would encourage you is to prepare a time and place. The reason is because if you don't have a time that it's marked out or a place that you're going to do it, any distraction in your life can simply swallow that time up because it's not accounted for. And so to have a time, and this is what I'm going to try to do it tomorrow. Distractions will happen. Life happens. And so it's going to be interrupted from time to time. And that's okay. But to have a time and a place. And don't let rules of other people tell you how it must be done and where it must be done. It can be at morning and night. It can be in your, in your office. It can be in your closet. It can be in your car. You can literally drive to work, sit in the parking lot for 15 minutes before you go in and read his word. It's, it's an interaction with him, right? So prepare a time. When am I going to try to do it tomorrow? And then begin with prayer. This is why this is so important. One of the most important things you can remember when you open up the Bible is this. I'm interacting not with something, but with someone. So it's a personal experience. And what that means is I always begin with prayer. So I go down, sit down. And what do I do when another person comes in my office? I say, hello. So that's what I say. I say, good morning, Lord. 
Thank you for allowing me to wake up and live in your world. I recognize you have authority over all things and I gladly submit to it myself. I'm about to open your word and I want to be taught by you. I want to be corrected. I want to be trained. I want to be built up. And then I read the Bible. Now, what do I read? It's big. You can pick a book, any book, 66 of them. They're all really good. You pick a book and you begin reading that book. If you say, well, I don't know which book. Well, we create here at Providence every quarter a Bible reading journal. It's right here. It's right out those doors and it's free every quarter. They just sit there all the time. And there's a passage of the Bible that's already chosen for you. And then there's some place to where you can write and there's some instructions on how do you begin to work through the text so that you can understand what does it mean and how is it applied to my own life. Now, look, if you have a plan of what you're reading right now in the Bible, then keep doing that. This is not better than that plan. But if you don't have a plan, this is better than that plan. Okay? This is better than that plan. This is better than no plan. I guarantee it. Okay? And so you want to be reading the Bible. And then as you're reading the Bible, this is, oh, this is just gold. I'm about to give you something that's literally changed my life. And that is you need to be on lookout for Jesus. Most of us, we read the Bible and we're on lookout for what we're supposed to do. Some instruction. It's something I'm supposed to work on today. Listen, you read the Bible, you're going to get a lot of that, okay? But you can get a lot of that and still have a cold heart. And so what you need to remember is this, is that every single one of us, we become like the person we admire. And in the Bible, every one of those pages, they all point to a man named Jesus Christ. So let me tell you what I do. Okay, not all the time, but I, this is what I'm doing. I'm right now reading John. It's a book of the Bible. And what I do is I wrote John, and then I wrote the very first word is Jesus. And then I start reading. And anytime I find something about Jesus, whether it's what he's doing, what he's saying, what he's forgiving, what he's like, what his character is like, his promises, whatever it is, I just write it down. And so if you start John, you find things like Jesus was present in the beginning. Jesus is the word, the ultimate revelation of God to man. Jesus was with God the Father in the beginning. Jesus is God. Jesus made all created things. Jesus is life. Jesus is light. Jesus sent John the Baptist to point to the light. Jesus is the true light. Jesus causes believers to be born again. And what you'll find is this. As you, as you begin to simply write out, this is what I see about Jesus. You are literally going to catalog a portrait of glory. And what that means is this, is that if you attempted to erase this word Jesus, you would not find another name that would fit. Admire him. Be on lookout for Christ. It's a relationship with him. And then what I try to do is I pray through what I have learned. Literally, when you're reading, you find things in there that you wish you were, but you're not. So like, God, I confess my sin because what I see here is what, not what I see. I want to be like this. And so then the words themselves becomes the basis, the framework to help guide you through praying for yourself or your family or your work or the things that are happening in the world. I urge you to position yourself to hear and to see Christ. The second thing we find here is that disciples of Jesus treasure his words in order to be trained by them. 
This is true. Every single disciple of Jesus, they treat his words as different from all of the words. You see, there's a lot of words. Let me just say something. In the sermon, the best words you're going to hear are the words we read directly out of Luke. There is so much social commentary. There's so much opinion pieces. There's so many people, so many talking voices all over the world. And this is what we find. You find a disciple of Christ. And what you find is a person that says Jesus words are better than all those words. And all of those other words are true and glorious so much or or, or only to the extent that they echo Jesus words. For Jesus words are infallible. Jesus words are incomparable. Jesus words are authoritative. Jesus words were told in Psalms Rejoices the heart, revives the soul, and enlightens the eyes. It's better than gold, and it's sweeter than honey. What you find among a disciple is this, is that even though literally the waterfall of God's word is so intense, and you just think, man, there's no way to capture it all. It's sort of like this picture to where, to where, to where the heart of a disciple is this. It says, I realize I can't catch it all. There's so much glory and so much truth and so much wisdom in his word. And yet I don't want any drop to fall to the ground. I wish I had hands that were just absolutely enormous that could catch every single drop, every meaning, every aspect of wisdom. I can't, but I want to. A disciple wants to. It changes the way he listens to sermons. You see, some of you are like, you know, I've done this a bunch of times and I'm probably going to be alive six more days. And so in another week, I'll get another one of these. And so many people, they listen and it's like just letting the water fall and they don't care what they catch. When you read the Bible, when you hear the Bible, a disciple says, I must treasure those words. And the reason is because of the promise that's held by Jesus in those words. In in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, he says, look, here's the promise. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. You know what that means? It means for those of us who have seen Jesus as the ultimate, winsome, wise king of the world, who treats people better and different than anyone else, He says, we hold on to his words. And what's going to happen over a period of time is that we will become more like Christ in the way we treat people. We will have more of a tank to be able to withstand mistreatment so that we can respond to them as God responds to them, who gives rain and who gives sunshine, not only to the to the grateful, but also to the ungrateful. You see, God wants in each one of our lives for us to become like him. You know, you're like, there's no way he's going to get through this whole sermon. I'm not. So this is an amazing sermon of Jesus um, that I know there's a lot of things in there. You're like, man, I wish he would just, what does that one mean? And what does that one mean? But what I hope you can see is this, is although I cannot explain to you every sentence of Jesus' sermon to this crowd on this day, what we find in this sermon is this, is that Jesus is drawing a line in the sand by defining what a disciple is so that those in the crowd who are not disciples can make a decision. And so what you can find, I'm going to try to do it this way, is there's really three big parts of this sermon. The first, he teaches this, that his disciples embrace a new set of values. He says in verse 20, he says, look, blessed are those who are poor, hungry, who weep, who are hated, excluded, reviled, and spurned. And you're like, what? That doesn't sound attractive. And then he says, and woe to those who are rich, full, laugh, and who, when people speak well of you. What could he possibly be talking about? 
One of the things you find, and what he means here, I'm going to explain a little bit more in just a moment, is this, is that for a disciple, what you find in their life is at one point in time, they, they can say, you know what? I used to think like that. I used to talk like that. I used to listen to things like that. I used to believe that. I used to have that worldview. But now Jesus has given me a different vision for life. And so what is prized in the world is not prized in my heart anymore. One of the things you find in the Bible is a lot of confusing words. It's true. It's because it's a totally different worldview. And so Luke writes down in Matthew's, his gospel actually writes about the same sermon and he gives a little bit more fullness so that we can understand. And this is important for this reason. Every disciple inspects what is confusing in the Bible and we do so because we know the good heart of our king. In other words, when when we find something that's confusing, we don't say, ah, I just reject it all. We say, no, wait, the one who died for me wrote that. So there must be treasure that I simply cannot see at first. And this is what we find in this sermon. You see here in Luke, he says, blessed are those who are poor. But in Matthew 5, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In other words, what he's saying here is this. For those who are so humble within their heart to recognize that they have a debt before God that they cannot pay. And that leads to the next one. Blessed are those who are hungry now. He's not talking about food because in Matthew chapter 5, he actually says, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, blessed are those people who say, I have a spiritual debt and I have such a hunger to be right with God and to know God and to have a kind of righteousness that would get me to heaven, but I don't have it. And blessed are those who weep. Matthew 5, 4 says, blessed are those who mourn over sin. That's what he's talking about. Who's saying, I don't have it. I repent, God, I don't have it. I cannot save myself. And the reason he says blessed is this kind of person is because it's only this kind of person who has the stomach to look at Jesus and say, I need you. Otherwise, we think, I don't need you. I got me. And so when he says blessed are those who are poor and hungry and weep, what he's saying is he's giving us a different perspective that once we see that perspective, we can never go back. A disciple of Jesus also, we're told, pursues a new standard of love. There's all kinds of words and passages in here about loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you. What he's saying is this, is that a disciple has a different standard that instead of saying, hey, you mistreated me in the world, I'm going to mistreat you. He says, you mistreated me. I'm going to be like my father who gives rain to people who mistreat him. And in doing so, I'm going to treat you like I wish that you would treat me. Because that's what Jesus told me to do. It's a totally different paradigm. And then the third is that each disciple of Jesus pursues a life of integrity. You see in verse 43 through 45, he's talking about trees. And he says that a good tree has good fruit. A bad tree has bad fruit. And then he talks about the tongue. The word integrity, it comes from a word integer. Those of you who are students, you're like, hey, I've heard integer. It means a whole number instead of a fraction. This is what he's talking about here. He's saying there is a lot of people in the world. There's a lot of people, maybe even in this room that say, you know what? My heart is an absolute travesty. And yet if I can simply take my tongue and hold it for about two hours on a Sunday morning, people will still admire me. And a disciple of Jesus says, Jesus, I need for there to be integrity throughout that my words And my actions all come from my heart. And so anytime I see any one of those three out of step with Christ, I'm coming back and saying, God, fix it. Fix it all. This is what a disciple does. And these disciples, these early disciples, they treasured these words so much so that they recorded them down so that we have them. 
and future generations of disciples. They then took those words, they treasured them, and they translated these words. The first was a man named Jerome, and he translated it into Latin. And then in 1300 or the 13th century, or actually uh, the 1300 years later, I believe, there was a man, he says, you know what? There's a lot of people in the world who speak English. They don't have a Bible in their own, own language. And so John Wycliffe, he says, they need to have a Bible in their language. Well, he died and the Pope had his translation burned because he was threatened by having people read the Bible. John Huss picked up his work and he translated until he was martyred. And then William Tim Tyndall, and this is his finished translation, was the first one to finish it. He did so with a bounty on his head. And then he, as a consequence for translating the Bible into English, he died as a martyr. Why were all of these people so passionate enough to die to get an English Bible this morning into your lap? Because they heard Jesus' words were so compelling when he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. These disciples, just like these disciples, look at these words and say, there are people who are living in prisons, spiritually and emotionally, and unless they hear these words, they cannot be set free. And so let me encourage us as a church family to, release our, to not release our grip on the authority of God's word. This baton has been passed from generation to generation, and it is now in our hands. There are 2,000 people groups around the world today who still don't have a copy of the Bible in their own language. What if God would use us or maybe even you to reduce that by one? There are entities, organizations, schools that can help you and we can put you in contact with them and you can give your life to making sure somebody else has a Bible in their language. The third thing and the last thing is that True disciples of Jesus obey his words. One of the things that a disciple comes to the table with is this. They come to Jesus and say, look, I'm in this situation. What would you do? And then they say, and before you give me an answer, I want you to know the answer is already yes. This is what Jesus means when he says in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And so Jesus, in this moment, he tells a story a common familiar story of two builders who built a house, one without a foundation, one with a foundation in order to make his point. And what I want you to sort of think about is this, is that if you and I were simply driving down the road and we saw these two houses at the point when the framing was going up, the walls and the roof, and let's just say they were the, they were the exact same prints. And so it was the exact same house, one over here, one over here. You and I would not be able to tell the difference between the two. That is his point. You and I might even get to the place where because we've seen it over a period of time, one took so much longer than the other that you say, you know what? If I ever build a house, I'm going with builder number two because he's so much more efficient. And builder number one, he spends a lot of time digging in the dirt on my dime. But what distinguishes the two homes? And the answer is the storm. And there's a lot of storms in life like cancer and job loss and discouragement, anxiety, disease, all kinds of things. But that's not the storm that he's primarily talking about. But this same passage in Matthew's gospel talks about a different storm. And it's for people who are not trusting Christ. And it's the storm when they stand before God Almighty and are judged for the way they lived. 
On that day, only one kind of house survives, and it's the house that's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is not teaching that we enter heaven by our works of obedience. Let it be known that all we bring to Christ is the sin from which we need to be forgiven. But a relationship with Jesus Christ that's made possible by grace through his death and resurrection warms the heart of a disciple so that that heart is inclined to want to obey. Which is what 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 is all about when he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You should ask yourself, is the Bible a burden to me today? For it is not to a disciple. And so let me encourage us to examine our heart for new birth and fresh obedience. New birth is what happens when we are born again, we trust Christ. But then one of the evidence of that reality is fresh obedience in our life. One of the greatest dangers is when you are close to God's house is you may assume that you were in God's family. You come to church, you park near Jesus people, sing with Jesus people, hear about Jesus and assume you are in his family. Let me tell you something. Irreligious lost people do not make this assumption, but religious lost people do. Churchgoers do. Churchgoers who are not born again are much more at risk than people who are irreligious and lost in the world. And the reason is because they assume this is all it is. I'm good to go. Which is why the Bible says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith and test yourself. And so I would ask you to test yourself. Is there love for Jesus today? Is there love for him today? Is there love for his word? Is there a trust in your heart for him today? Is there the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life today? Is there a love for God's people today? Does his spirit confirm in your spirit that you are his child? Is there repentance today? If so, then praise Jesus, your savior, who's given you grace. And if not, do not presume. Do not presume, but put your trust in Christ and live. For when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple, when he was a little baby, a man filled with the Holy Spirit named Simon, he picked that baby Jesus up and said, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel so that thoughts may from many hearts may be revealed. And what he meant was this, is that this boy who grew up into this man, who grew up into this savior of the world, will be the crossroad for eternity for every man and woman who has ever lived. How people respond to him will reveal not only their heart, but their destiny. Therefore, it matters what Jesus says. It matters how we respond. And it will matter forever. And so let's be people who cannot stop learning from the king. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you asking that you would open up our our hearts even further. Even those in the room who just love the Bible and treasure it, read it all the time. Would you expand their heart for the Bible? And as you expand our heart for the Bible, would you expand our heart for people who don't have the Bible? Would you expand our heart for people who are far from you, who are irreligious? Would you... Would you open up our hearts wide? I ask God that as we sing to you now, I pray for those who are considering trusting Christ. Even now, I pray, God, that you would incline their heart 
to call out to you in faith, to admit that they are a sinner, to believe in Christ, to confess Christ as Lord and to become a disciple. I pray that you would lead them right now. And for those of us who love Christ, we look forward to seeing now. As we sing, God, we ask that that you would remind us as we sing about building our life upon Christ, that there is a sure foundation and therefore there is great hope underneath our feet. We love you and we sing to you now and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.